0: G'day No Excuses Nation, Brant Garvey here and welcome to Episode 9 of the No Excuses Show, where I chat to the world's grittiest, inspiring and motivated people. Let's chat with today's featured guest, Ian Doonican from Sleep for Performance. I've got an interesting story about how I actually met Ian. So I was away over in the AIS in Canberra for a training week. And me and my coach were hanging out in the lunch area and we saw someone walking around with a t-shirt that had my name on the back of it. And we're like, what? That was a a little um, fundraising exercise we did. So my coach was like, go up and say hi. So I went up and I was like, I'm the guy on the back of your t-shirt. And that was actually how I met you. You were over there doing some stuff with... Athletes at the time?
1: Yeah, I just found that T-shirt in the bin that morning. <laughs> so I, I don't know where it came out. <laughs>
0: no, I know you paid hard cash for that bit. <laughs>
1: yeah, so I, I was at the IS. I was doing research um, with the combat centre, which is judo, wrestling, taekwondo, um, the Olympic sports. And so yep. we were on the camp looking at weight cutting for athletes um, in that camp. So I think that's the, the camp I was there for. I was there a few times, but I think that was the one where um, I was wearing that T-shirt on that yeah. specific occasion.
0: Yeah, I know, it was a really cool experience and we've actually been in touch ever since that. Um, Most of the time just to give some type of cheeky jab in social media or, or something along those lines. <laughs> Encouragement, I think is what you call it. Um, but one of the reasons that I decided to get in in today was to talk about sleep. Uh, I know that in my campaign leading into the Rio games that I sacrificed sleep. I was probably getting about four, between four and six hours a night. And that was just because I was trying to fit in all the training plus working. And in those days, I really didn't think that there was an impact on performance by missing out on that you know, suggested eight hours of sleep. So I wanted to be able to bring Ian in and answer some of the questions that I have about sleep and how it relates to performance. And then also some of the questions that we got from the people off Facebook. So I'm gonna start. Does having a, under that recommended eight hours of sleep affect your performance?
1: Well, I think to pick up on your first point, it's not a suggested eight-hour sleep. It's a scientifically proven fact that most people will require, probably 95% of the population, somewhere between seven to nine hours sleep per night. So that's the kind of area we do want to get into. Yep. Now, in the work that I've been doing and sort of the other work that's been happening and my PhD research was actually in sleep and performance in elite combat and contact athletes. And so we do see that those athletes who do achieve less than that actually does affect their performance. Now, that performance could be... Uh, on a daily uh, f- frequency like being daily, weekly, or during a game or a competition. But it's also important to know that we're talking about two different types of performance. We're talking about cognitive performance, so basically how your, how your brain operates and the decisions that you make, and we're also talking about physical performance, so strength, endurance, aerobic, anaerobic capacity, however, however you want to cut it. And we do know from multiple studies on the cognitive domain and the physical domain that when we get less sleep over long periods of time, that all the measures of cognitive and physical performance deteriorate over time. Yep. So, to answer your question, yes. And it's not just based on hearsay or suggestion or theory, it's actually based on scientific evidence.
0: Some of you might actually recognize Ian. He recently took part in TEDx Perth. And one of the things that I took away from his interview was the relationship or the comparison of missing out on sleep versus blood alcohol level, and uh, yeah, I'd love for you to explain a little bit about that as well.
1: Yeah, so this is interesting because um, this has been around for about 20 years, but it's still not really well known, and there was a very interesting study done by Professor Drew Dawson from, he's at Central Queensland University at the moment, um, and he showed the relationship between hours of wakefulness and the relationship with blood alcohol concentrate. So basically what happens is if you wake up in the morning, and you stay awake for a sustained period of time, The markers we look at are 17 hours of being awake without any sleep and then 24 hours of being awake without any sleep. And so what we find is that when you're awake for 17 hours continuously, so you might see this in multi-sport activities such as adventure racing or ultra-marathons or even in military, people awake for 17 hours, Mm -hmm. their reaction time or their cognitive performance, their decision-making is the equivalent to somebody who's intoxicated to 0.05%. So those studies have been run in laboratories where we take somebody who's intoxicated or we feed them alcohol to do a reaction time test or a driving simulation test, and then someone who's been awake without any alcohol and they both behave exactly the same in terms of the reaction time and decision making. Now if we go to a further level and we have 24 hours of wakefulness, then it becomes 0.08%, which is the legal limit in the states, for example. So we do see that you know, it's a very, probably good way of correlating the negative effects of sleep or the lack of sleep and the hours of wakefulness from the inverse relationship to something that's well known, such as blood alcohol concentration. Yep. So definitely yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think it's fascinating that it, you know that you can have that much effect on your ability to coordinate yourself. In what A lot of people would go through I mean there's plenty of times where people don't sleep for 17 to 24 hours and then probably still trying to do everything that they would normally do when it's going to have a big impact on what they're doing Um, I, I noticed that you obviously mentioned endurance sport I'd like to also point out that Ian is a little bit crazy like myself and has taken part in a few endurance events one of those being an ultra marathon how many times have you done ultra marathon about 20 20 ultra marathons, Yeah, and there was one that you did that was 100 kilometres, correct?
1: Uh, most of them were 100 kilometres. The yeah. biggest one I've done was in a race called Leadville okay. in the US in the Colorado Rockies, which is 100 miles or about 166 kilometres. 166 kilometres. Oh, it gets worse. It starts at 4 o'clock in the morning and it yep. gets worse. It's at altitude. So yep. you start at 10,000 feet and you go up to about 12,500, 13,000 feet. Um, And so, yeah, that was quite an experience.
0: How Um, long did it take
1: you to finish that event? 27 hours, 42 (laughs) minutes, and 15 seconds.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You have to remember every second.
1: Uh, Did you have a nap at all during that? No, I didn't. My strategy was to just keep going. I find that, for me, um, initiating sleep can be quite difficult. Mm -hmm. So the sleep onset or sleep onset latency is quite difficult for me to achieve. And then, plus that, um, if you have a lot of sleep deprivation and you do have a nap, you have what's called sleep inertia afterwards, which is a groggy feeling. Yep. So for me, for that specific race, because I, I, you had to get the race done under 30 hours, okay, okay. so I, was, I knew I was going to be up against it, and so my strategy was just to power through. So what I actually did was a different strategy. I used sleep banking the day before. Okay. So in the days leading up to the race, I tried to maximise my time in bed and have 12 hours in bed for three days before the race. And then also, because altitude affects your sleep, I went out two and a half weeks before the race and lived in that town okay. to, to acclimatize the altitude. Because when we go up typically above 5,000 feet, we see that it's difficult to initiate stage one sleep, so to fall asleep. And we also see that any sort of sleep-related breathing disorders are, are also exacerbated when we're at altitude as well. So it's really make sure that I wanted to get over that kind of the jet lag as the altitude, and then have enough time to sleep bank before the race, so
0: yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited that you had to, the, the limit of the race was 30 hours, because I got you to say at least one three. I wanted the 33, but we got you to say just one three with the accent. <laughs> um,
1: it's like an episode <laughs> of The Office.
0: <laughs> but you also brought up sleep banking. Now I firmly believed that it was a myth that you could save up sleep that would then help you when you were sleep
1: deprived. Is that not the case? A lot of controversy in the sleep scientific community about sleep banking or sleep optimization. Mm -hmm. Um, From the literature is divided on it. Yep. So you can't really kind of oversleep. You can't kind of just sleep eight hours every night and then go, okay, now I'm going to sleep 10 hours. Mm-hmm. You can't just kind of switch to that because your body will naturally wake you up because it's kind of this kind of inbuilt mechanism to, to make you wake up. But what we what we are kind of recommending about sleep banking is just allowing more time to get rid of any sleep debt that you may have. Yeah. So for example, Brian, what we see a lot of people say is, oh, I get by on six hours sleep a night, that's fine. But when we take away all the extra stimulus, family, work, alarm clocks, TV, all these social things that's going on, and you leave people, they generally sleep eight or nine hours. Yeah, yeah. Which is really interesting. So people say that they get by on six. Maybe it's all they have, and, yeah. it, and they manage that. Yeah. But we take all our wear. We see that happen. So when we say about sleep banking or sleep optimization, because most, particularly in Australia, most of us aren't getting enough sleep. When we do say to people just allow a bit of extra time, we do see that sleep duration increase. Mm-hmm. And we've mm-hmm. seen that with athletes as well. And some of our work with the Western Force. When we do say to people like allow extra time for sleep, they actually do achieve more sleep. Yeah. Which means that they are
0: technically somewhat sleep-deprived. Yeah, okay, so yeah. Be- basically giving yourself enough of a buffer and then seeing how long you would naturally sleep for. Exactly, yep. yeah. Um, I've just realised also that I haven't explained <laughs> why that I have all this stuff connected to me.
1: I'll tell you uh, what, Rand, it- you were too busy <laughs> trying to take the piss on me to get to see 33 and third, that's why. Exactly, one three.
0: that was my entire focus <laughs> of this interview. Yeah, yeah um, I've, I've borrowed my wife's lovely nighty, and you'll notice that there's just a few cables, I think there's maybe 20... Sorry, cover them nipples. 20, keep it PG. <laughs> I think there's like 25 or so of these things hooked up to me. If you just wanted to run through yeah. what this thing is and what it's supposed to do.
1: This is a Disney Channel. Okay, so what we have, and we'll just start here from the top on your head, if you want to just look forward. Mm-hmm. We have here in the head what are called EG sensors. So we've got sensors here at the front, the middle and the back. And basically what we're doing here is we're taking brain activity, if any, from (laughs) Branson's head. And we would have that projected to another control room. And basically your brain would behave in different ways in different stages of sleep. So we have stage one, stage two, stage three, and REM sleep. Mm -hmm. Stage one being a light stage of sleep. Two, three, we're getting deeper. Stage three is deep sleep. This is where growth hormone is released. And then we have REM sleep as well which is dreaming sleep. Okay. A lot of people say, oh, deep dreaming sleep. It's actually not true, because dreaming sleep or REM sleep, it's actually very similar to being awake. Okay. Okay. So we have all these electrodes here, and we're looking for all this activity. Then we also have, as we move down here, we've also got EMG um, here, so looking for muscular activity here on the chin. Um, you know, and on the jawline. And what we're looking for there is any kind of grinding of your teeth or bruxism overnight. Mm -hmm. We also want to see when someone is actually dreaming, the um, muscle chin activity will attenuate, so it'll be fairly flat, so we won't see much activity. Um, And so that's why we're looking for those kind of signals from there. Here across his nose, what we're looking for here, these are thermistors or oral nasal thermistors, so we're looking for airflow. And so you see one here in front of his mouth, and this is what we use to try to pick up any sleep-related breathing disorders that somebody might have, such as snoring or sleep apnea, and so that's what we use to pick up this. Then we have ECG here to see if the tin man has a heart. We also have these thoracic bands, and abdo bands and we're looking for respiratory effort basically in and out. So we would look if there's any disruption in Brandt's um, breathing and then also how he's kind of chest, if he's got any paradoxal breathing or expansion or whatever it might be uh, in different directions. And so we're just looking for those things as well. Then down onto his wrist, we have a pulse oximetry, so we're looking for desaturation. So typically for obstructive sleep apnea, we would see um, reduction in airflow or breathing, we would see some EEG activity, we would see a blood oxygen desaturation by greater than
0: 3%,
1: and that's how we kind of identify a sleep-related breathing disorder. Then down, we could go down to leg then and we would look for other movement disorders down here. Now currently it's worth noting that there's over 80 80 sleep disorders recognized by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And this thing here that you have all up is called polysomnography or PSG. and This is the gold standard that we use to try to identify a sleep disorder. Now many people will look at this and go, how are you supposed to sleep? That's not representative of a night's sleep. And yeah, it's not. But all we're trying to do is get a block of your sleep so we can either identify or eliminate any of those sleep disorders. Because once we know what sleep disorder you have, whether it's sleep-related breathing disorder or a movement disorder or a... REM behavior disorder, we act out your dreams like sleep talking or moving around, then we won't be able to treat you for that. And every treatment modality is different. Yeah. I think a lot of people think a sleep disorder is just snoring and sleep apnea, where mm-hmm. an actual factor is over 80. So for all these things here, we plug them into this thing here, like a, a little box here. And we use the 80-20 method. Uh, sorry, the 80-20. The, I'm thinking about data. <laughs> um, 10-20 method on the head to... Um, plug all these electrodes in, and so we can go up to all these different sort of EEG. So everything that's on brand gets plugged into this box and then goes to another control room where a technician will monitor that overnight or for the specified period of time. They'll take all that data, they'll break it down to 30 second epochs or time periods, and they'll score every 30 seconds for a whole eight hours to see what you have going on. And they'll then identify you spend two hours in stage one sleep, an hour in stage two, um, and then we'll convert that to percentages as well. And we'll see then against your age group, for example, are you spending 15% of your time in stage three sleep, yep. which is for growth hormone, physical repair, recovery, and then we might say, well, for your age group, it should be 20%. So we wanna see how we can maximize that. Yeah. So we kind of use that, this is this more of a diagnostic than a kind of a longitudinal assessment over time.
0: And so you were talking about those stages before. Um, is stage three the deepest sleep cycle? Or is it the. Yes. The, oh it is. It so, you've got, what is REM sleep, the lightest, and that's the dreaming one? So,
1: you start at awake, yep. then you fall asleep, and you go into stage one. Yep. So, the EEG activity kind of attenuates and becomes less frequent. Mm-hmm. Then it goes into stage two, and that's characterized by what we call sleep spindles or sharp um, kind of vertex waves, goes up and down. We see that in stage one. Yep. Then we get these sleep spindles, so it's like this frequency, and then these what's called K complexes in stage two. And then we go on stage three, and that's characterized by these long, slow. Um, rolling sort of EG kind of things that you will see. Yep. And that's the deep sleep and that's where growth hormones being released. And that's where your body recovers from that's physical repair and recovery. So a lot of your physical repair is happening in one, two and three. Yep. And then your kind of brain is getting rebooted, so to speak, in REM. Okay. So REM is really important for brain reboot or cognitive performance the next day. Yep. And the non rem, which is one, two and three, is important for physical Uh, Okay. performance the next day. Now, people will say, which is more important? They're both equally important. Now, generally at the first half of the night, you'll do more non-REM sleep. Mm -hmm. Towards the back end of the night, you'll do more REM sleep. However, you will oscillate. So you might fall asleep at 10 o'clock, then you might wake up at half 11 in a dream. So you might be short little burst up into REM, but the periods become more frequent. However, the body will always prioritize REM sleep first.
0: Yeah.
1: And so REM sleep is
0: when you're dreaming, is that? Yes. Yeah, okay. Rapid eye movement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And
1: the reason being is because when you're in REM sleep, you basically have you got what's called muscle atonia. Your mm-hmm. body isn't moving because you don't want you to act out your dreams. Yeah. The only thing that's basically doing is your eyes are rolling mm-hmm. and you're breathing. Okay. That's yeah, all. It's fascinating. That's the kind of activity we're looking for there. Yep. Yeah. All right. I'm just going to go to a
0: couple of the questions that we received on, on Facebook. In the lead up to this interview, I think there's 33 questions. <laughs> Point three um, <laughs> Does training affect sleep? So I know that this happens to me personally, but I had a friend ask me on Facebook Does having a hard training session, like where you just absolutely flog yourself? Yeah and then you come home and try to sleep, not straight away, but you can do it earlier in the day, but that you're restless through that sleep.
1: Yeah, flogging yourself means something different in Ireland. (laughs) Um, Yes, is the answer to the question, so it depends, but also depends on the time of the training session. Okay. So for example, you take someone working Monday to Friday, nine to five, then they go to the gym and train sort of seven to eight, come home, have dinner, very hard to get asleep before twelve o'clock. Okay. So within kind of sort of two to three hours after a training session or a game or a competition, it's really difficult to initiate sleep. So that's first of all, it's the time. Yep. Second of all, then it's the it's the level of intensity or the real mm-hmm. perceived exertion or P.E., which many people will be familiar with, that effort, and how you go is going to be very hard then to kind of relax afterwards. So we see this a lot with professional rugby players playing at night.
0: Yep. Two four o'clock in the morning. So what happens if you were doing a, say a five o'clock training session? And it was really hard. Is that going to affect your ability to sleep within that five hours? Like, would you would you still be looking? Would you still be struggling to go to bed before that I, 10 think, you'd
1: be, I think you'd be struggling to go to bed before probably nine o'clock. Yep. Definitely. Okay. So you're not going to probably initiate sleep so at least after nine o'clock. Probably more towards the ten. Yep. But also, Brand, it's important. This is one of the things I'm seeing a lot across all athletic groups, is the use of pre-workout and caffeine. Okay. Because this is what's happening. So many people are finishing work. They're heading heading to the gym. They're sculling a pre-workout drink as they go in the door. They're doing their workout. Now, caffeine takes anywhere from 30 minutes to 60 minutes a peak. Mm-hmm. So for some people, the caffeine isn't peaking until they leave. Yeah, yeah. And what does caffeine do? It affects your sleep. Because caffeine takes 30 minutes to f- 60 minutes to peak. Yep. And then it takes four to five hours to get out of your system. And I heard it had half like life. a 12-hour half-life. Eight-hour that- eight half-life. Uh, Eight-hour, yep. Now, there's different sort of metabolizers. People are slow and fast. Yep. An average person is probably going to take about four hours to get past that half-life. Yeah. So if you have a pre-workout at 6 o'clock, peaks at 7, you're going to have no chance before 11 o'clock going to yep. sleep, really. And if we had some work like that published recently.
0: And if you're going to sleep, so you're, yep. you believe you're sleeping, but you're just not going to hit those... Um, zone, so if you do fall asleep are you, because you've had caffeine is it just affecting the quality of that sleep?
1: Yeah, so interestingly what's going to do is if you can fall asleep, now what caffeine normally does, if it's in the system, it affects the amount of awakenings or arousals you're going to have so overnight then we see what's called more WAZO, wake after sleep onset, yep. which is basically more awakenings, mm-hmm. and so think about your bed like a utilisation metric mm-hmm. time in bed, time spent sleeping, either end of that there's time Fall asleep, all those awakenings. So your utilization, your efficiency of the bed has gone down now, maybe to eighty or seventy percent. Gotcha. So while you might be in bed for ten hours, realistically you've only slept seven, seven and a half. So a lot of people confuse time in bed as opposed to sleep duration. Yeah. So just because you allow seven hours in bed or eight hours in bed, doesn't mean that that will you will have one hundred percent sleep time.
0: And you say um, the, the times that you wake up, is there an average kind of standard amount of times that you'll, a, a person would wake up for an eight-hour
1: sleep? It's quite normal to wake up, you know, like you know anywhere for up to 10 times a night. Yep. And and it's quite normal to wake up anywhere for like up to 30 minutes cumulatively. Yep. It's quite okay. But many people aren't even cognizant they're waking up. Mm-hmm. There's more movements, arousals, and they, this is where this EG in your head is more kind of... Um, sensitive at picking up those those little arousals or movements, yeah. Because when we're asleep, sort of, which is interesting, because this is the top level PSG, yep. Then we go PSG one, two, three, and four. Then we have wrist-worn devices that are medicated yeah, good.
0: Good question. And, but... and
1: then we go down onto the other devices, such as Garmin, Garmin Fitbits yep. and so on. And then we go onto self-reported sleep or, or apps. Yep. And so the more we go down, the less reliability mm-hmm. that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And we find
1: this. So when we compare self-reported sleep versus polysomnography sleep people are out by two hours yeah wow and, and, this and that's a like massive so massive yeah. difference especially over a week so people have this idea oh yeah i'm very good at knowing when i'm asleep not really because you don't astral projectors yourself all your body to watch yourself all night so I, I don't know
0: well yeah we're talking eight hours and if you're out by two that's uh you know 25 percent
1: yeah
0: uh how do you recover from jet lag it's on a slightly different tangent and when to or not to sleep when traveling
1: Okay, so the answer to this is going to be like a politician. Yep. Because it actually depends. So let's just talk about the principles of jet lag first and what's going on. And I'm not going to be able to answer that question exactly because it does depend on every situation. Okay. So if we think about a map of the world in front of us, we're here in Australia on the West Coast. If we travel West or East, we're going to experience jet lag.
0: Yeah, I always find it affects me much more when I'm going West. No, East. When I go East. Yeah, when I go to the US and stuff. Yeah. It's when so you go to much, Sydney. Yeah, when yeah. It's so much harder for me than yeah. if I go to say Europe and London and
1: yeah. And there's a reason behind that. So eastward travel is always harder than going westward. Yep. Right. So every time zone you go across, it gets more and more difficult. So from here to Sydney at the moment, it's like two hours. That's not too bad.
0: Yeah. I, f- I find the difference between two and three is even quite drastic.
1: A lot of people do. Yeah. You go to New Zealand. It's like a five-hour time difference, four-hour time difference, or it might be time of year. That can be hard too. So. If you go left to right, we'll say across the globe, you're gonna have jet lag. If you go north to south, you're not gonna have jet lag. So if you fly from here to Singapore.
0: Or Japan, so I traveled to Japan recently. Or one hour. Yeah, one hour, and you can travel there so easily.
1: Yeah. So what you might experience on those flights is sleep deprivation or a bad night's sleep mm-hmm. from travelling, but it's not actually jet lag per se. Yep. Jet lag happens when you cross different time zones. So east is more difficult than going west. Mm-hmm. When to sleep, when not to sleep, all depends All depends on when you arrive, the flights you leave, okay, the, the type of travel you're doing, business, economy, first class, whatever it might be. Are you going there for a meeting? Are you going there for holidays? Are you going there for like a sport? Yeah. So it depends what you want to try and optimize. So in the work that we did with the Western Force, looking at jet lag and adaptation, we actually did a lot of modeling work. We had them wear wrist activity monitors, and we helped them to pick the flights so they would arrive in at specific times okay. and then help them synchronise with different strategies around exposure to light, meal times and so on. So it's really hard to kind of say this is what you should do. Yeah. And people will say this is what you should do. It's actually incorrect. Yeah. Right? But what I will say is in the absence of having no strategy, when you arrive at a new time zone, stay awake for as long as you can and try to get onto that new time zone. Okay. So if you go, let's say to um, London you got like seven hour time difference, eight hour time difference. Yep. If you land there at like 10 o'clock in the morning, try and stay awake all that day, yep. have lunch, have dinner, observe the sunset and go to bed then at nine o'clock that night and stay in bed till the next morning.
0: So that'd be a, a simple strategy when you haven't got the ability to find out yeah. exactly what you should be doing for... The absence of
1: no knowledge yep. you, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Get on that local time zone, don't start trying to sleep during the day, then you'll be awake at night and it'll completely desynchronize you because for every time zone you cross, it can take you a day to get used to it. Yeah. So for some people, it takes eight days to get used to London. Yeah. Okay. So
0: yeah, me traveling to the US, it feels like about the ten days yes. before. Um. Well, Rio, for example, that was a you know a firm ten days that I needed to recover for the yeah. for the race, and that's exactly how much time we had. So yeah, it's it's amazing, and it's a, the difference between traveling west and east is just uncomparable it's so much harder going to the us than to the
1: now on that point brand if people want to go to my website sleep yep. sleep the number four performance.com.au there is a free book on there which is about 30 40 pages on managing sleep and jet lag for optimal performance you can download that little pdf book there free of charge and you can read more about that as well and get some tips and tricks on jet lag
0: Yeah, I totally recommend going and checking that out because it just makes such a massive difference if you you go prepared, especially if you want to be able to utilize as much time as you can when you land into a a new country or a new time zone. Okay, can you change teenagers sleep patterns so that they can function better and how? It's a pretty broad question.
1: This is one of these questions that when you answer, you don't win with anybody. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you won't win with the parents and you won't win with the teenagers. Yep. So I'll come back to science. Yep. Here's the, here's the thing, right? Teenagers aren't lazy and they constantly get battered mm-hmm. by everybody about sleep, time to go to sleep, being lazy, all that. When we're born, we need anywhere up to 18 hours sleep a day. As we get older, we we don't need less sleep, but we kind of we tail off. Yeah. So once we get past the 23, 24, it's roughly about 7 to 9 hours a night. Mm-hmm. Teenagers need about 10 to 11 hours a night. Okay. But here's the problem with teenagers. they got to get up in the morning and go for school. Yep. Go to school at what? Like half 7, 8 o'clock. Some parents, have got to drop them off first. They might be swimming in the morning, so they might be at 5 o'clock, half 5.
0: Yeah.
1: But from the age of like 14 through to about 21, teenagers experience, experience a circadian phase um, delay. I don't know what that means, but so... Please. Neither do I, but I'm make it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, what happens is, we would normally fall asleep at normal population at 11 o'clock at night and wake up at 7. Yep. Teenagers don't. They want to go to bed. They, ca- they don't feel sleepy till 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So that'd be like me trying to put you to bed at 5 in the evening and you're going, I can't go to sleep. Okay. Same thing for a teenager. Their system is completely desynchronized. So that's just part of going through Teen- growing uh, up. Yeah. yeah. So they want to go to bed late. They become what we call an owl chronotype: go out to bed later and get up later. Yeah. As we get older, we generally come back around to the intermediate or kind of in between, or we become earlier, more of a lark. So I know for me, like now, forty this year, I, I'm waking up every morning at half five. Yep. When I was a teenager, I sleep until two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. The okay. So it's nothing got to do with the teenager. It's nothing got to do with their behaviour, and it's nothing got to do. With, like how lazy they are or their success, it's got to do with biology. Yeah. And so this is how teenagers fluctuate through this. I can
0: see thing. lots of teenagers getting excited about this clip, going, "Look, mum, this is this is science. This I is have science. to I have to sleep for 12 hours." Yeah. Like, but unfortunately, I would have society. loved to know this as a uh, as a young teen.
1: But unfortunately, society doesn't allow that.
0: Yeah.
1: And neither is family life or school or any of these other things. That's the problem.
0: Well, yeah, exactly, because you said that they, through this stage, they need to go to bed later, mm. but there's no way that they can do that and then they get to school one time because exactly. of the way it's set up.
1: And school is generally set up around parents. And about, yep. you know, and school has become earlier due to a lot of a push from parents about yep. work. So yeah,
0: so being kids. able to drop off. And then, like you said, if any of them try to do anything physical before that, they're well and truly eating into that sleep. So what about sports watches? I got a question on Facebook and they said, is uh, can you use the data that's on a sports watch to help with tracking sleep? What's the accuracy? Do they do do
1: it or are they just saying they do it? So it's very interesting. So when we look at, like I said, the polysomnography that you have on, to validate one of these devices, you need to have somebody wear this PSG and then wear one of these wrist activity monitors or sport watches and look at the data side by side. Mm -hmm. And so we do see a degree of variability between them. So my advice to people is, if you're going to purchase one of these devices, try and get one that has been somewhat scientifically validated against PSG and look for the degree of accuracy or variability. So for example, like say a XYZ device might pick up 90% of the total sleep duration. So you know that it's going to be about 90% accurate. Yeah. But there's lots of devices out there that aren't, aren't um, accurate, okay? And the problem is that people go, but they say it track sleep. They're wrist activity monitors, not medical devices. Yeah. And so they're under no obligation to have their stuff scientifically validated to mm-hmm. pick it up so if you're going to use a device bear in mind that there's a lot of variability between it if you have a device that tells you you're in light sleep and deep sleep i would question that unless it's taken heart rate variability mm-hmm. so definitely question that and the other thing I'd, I'd really exercise caution against is the use of smartphones yeah so people go oh so you got a smartphone there brand yeah oh i've got a sleep cycle app i put it over here we're all in the room. How's that measuring what's going on in your brain? Yeah. Right. This is the gold standard against this. Well. For a free app that you got. Now, if I'm your partner in bed, God forbid, and we're in here, whose brain is it measuring?
0: You wish you were that lucky. Uh,
1: yeah. But who? Yeah. But who, but who? Like you know, I mean, or, or a dog jumps on the bed, and then there's other ones people go, oh, but I have it on the bed. The dog is jumping up and down like who knows what's going on yeah so the 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 scientific validity between these kind of apps and a psg it's just
0: i suppose the only thing they could verify was if they were just sitting on their phone on facebook and do two in the morning at least to be able to tell them that they weren't (laughs) weren't sleeping for that period of
1: time. well all that's going to do is say like yeah and there is apps that you can get that i can say look the person stopped using their phone at this time and started at this time that's just that's just a period of inactivity. Yeah, it's exactly. actually no it's no it's no indication that they being asleep. But this sleep cycle app and stuff that goes on that's free and ninety-nine cents. Yeah. Guys, it's like, just yeah, just don't even bother about yeah, it really not even worth it. Yeah. 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 Um Okay,
0: now you're wearing a, a particular shirt there, which is Warrior U. Yeah.
1: What is, what is this all about? Warrior U. Well, Brant, as you may recall, I was in the military originally in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, in, I remember in the TEDx talk. TEDx talk. TEDx talk, where
0: you said the part about you falling asleep on patrol. That that stuck with me. I yeah, thought yeah, that
1: yeah. was uh Yeah. Well, I had been awake for seventy-two hours, so it cut me a break. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like I just fell asleep. Um, yeah. And it was was that true? Of the training part was it? Is that that like was when I was doing my non-commissioned officer's yeah. course. Yeah, so yeah. it was quite, yeah. Quite, brutal. Quite, quite fun, yeah. yeah. Um, And so through that and then through my subsequent work that I've been doing, I've become friends with a guy called Bram Conley, who people may know. Bram Conley is a fiction author. He's written two books, okay. which are very good. So if you like uh, military fiction or on special force, you like these books. are actually really good. I actually
0: make sure I read fiction books to go to sleep. So Yeah, yeah you know. might
1: want to read these because they get you quite <laughs> pumped up. They're quite good. So um, yeah, they're kind of like in that realm of like Born Identity or something like that. So they're really good books. But Bram himself was a major in the Australian Commando Unit Okay. and he served in Afghanistan and Iraq and he's a really good guy and he runs Warrior U and Warrior U supports people who want to join the military. So if people want to join the military, they want to get fit, they want to get into the mindset, they want to oh, connect okay. with other people, they can do that. But also... Well, it's like a bridging kind of workout, is it's, it? It's like a kind of, a, I suppose, like an online mentorship program where yep. you can join up. And it's quite cheap and, um, you know, affordable. And you can get workouts, you can talk to people who may be in the military, you can get some advice, whatever branch of military you want to go to, what type of fitness you have to do. But equally, there's people in there that aren't interested in joining the military they're in their 50s and 60s and just want to train like that and, and yep. understand the mindset and apply it to their life mm-hmm. so warrior you is, is a great kind of um, program that bram um operates and connects people together to promote that message you know of um of that kind of warrior ethos in life yeah. as well not just to join the military and bram's a great guy um he's very you know he's a he's, he's been on my podcast sleep for performance radio which is on itunes and podbean and um he, he's coming up in the in the new season that's coming out in july and uh bram goes into depth about his experience around sleep as okay. commando. So if you yep. think it was bad, me falling on control um patrol, well you hear what these guys do as commandos and how they sleep before a mission, during a mission after. Yeah. And um you know, Bram's tagline is sleep as a weapon. Yep. Because if you can optimise your sleep before a mission, you're one step ahead of the enemy. Yeah. And we're not talking about like seconds or minutes on a race like me and you were talking yeah. about. We're talking about life and death life situations. And death. Yep. So it's really interesting about how sleep in the military you know, affects people. So yeah, check out Warrior U. It's a great website. Bram does great stuff. And if you're interested in good fiction, check out Bram's uh, Bram's books. Yeah. yeah, go ahead and check that out. Now, in terms of connecting, how can uh, No
0: Excuses Nation connect with you? What's the best way? Obviously, you got the website and social media just start throwing a few of those things out and what they can expect
1: yeah so you can jump, go straight to probably sleep for performance the number4performance.com.au there you can kind of branch out to everything yep. so we've got a number of blogs that are on there so you can go and scroll through those blogs read some stuff and um, discuss some of the points that we've been talking about today you can download the jet lag book that we spoke about Yeah. you can download all my research there as well for free um, and there's the
0: caffeine research, is there yep, as well? all yep. there
1: as well. And there's blogs about that as well. So if you haven't got time to go into big scientific papers, you can download like a one page blog on that. Yeah. You can also, on that website, you can get um, any of my media appearances. Um, they're embedded there as YouTube clips. on so my TEDx Perth talk is yep. there. Stuff I've done at the AIS, Western Force, Perth Links basketball, all those video clips are in there.
0: I highly recommend checking out the TEDx too if you haven't seen it because I reckon it was amazing. And it was, what's it, 10 minutes? Yeah, nine and a half minutes short yeah. and sharp just nice. really
1: powerful yeah it's really good and then um the other thing you can do from there is you can navigate to Sleep for Performance Radio, and mm-hmm. uh, we've got about twenty odd episodes up there. Ten more coming out in July, which I'm really excited about. We have Russell Foster, one of the world's leading neuroscientists in sleep. He's got a TEDx talk, which is worth checking out, okay. which got over five million views. Wow! So uh, Russell's there. Russell's on the BBC, the Infinite Monkey Cage podcast. You know, he's very famous around the world in the sleep in the in the scientific community. We've got Amy Bender on from. Uh, Kanda, who works for Canadian Olympic Olympian athletes. Yeah. We've got Ian Pryor from the Western Force, the captain of the West- new Western Force. Bram Connolly from Special Forces. Sean Halson, head of recovery at the AIS. Um, we've got a star-studded lineup yeah. for this season. So we're going to launch 10 episodes and we're going to have it like Netflix so you can download the 10 and listen to them all in one go if you want or just put them to your phone to... Um, so they coming out in mid-July. Awesome. So really looking, looking forward to it. Yeah, that's a really good tool. I know Everything's free, by the way, on that site. Yeah. All right. I well, just wanted to say a massive thank you for your
0: time today, Ian, and um, also making this happen. It's been fascinating. I'm sure you guys have taken something away that you can implement to help sleep better for, for, for performance. And thank you again, and I'll talk to you soon. Sleep in and win. <laughs>